We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1, and that can be found on page 965 of the Church Bibles. So that's Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and, Jos and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Thanks very much, Catherine. You really drew the, drew the short straw, didn't you, with that reading? But well done. Excellently done. Um, I'm afraid we're just going to be focusing on the first 17 verses this evening, but um, it's going to become clear, I hope, that they are really wonderful and full of meaning. Our society loves instant gratification. Stream all the episodes of your favorite TV show now. Uh, order your favorite takeaway on the app now. Get uh, 24-hour news whenever you want it, wherever you are, on your phone, now. But what happened to the wisdom of Guinness? Good things come to those who wait. In uh, September, we embarked on the grand tour of the Bible. So far, through morning and evening services, we've stopped off at, I think, 39 um, different landmark chapters or passages in the Bible. I might be wrong on that in the Old Testament. And from Genesis to Malachi, we've been gripped by this greatest story. We ended the Old Testament this morning hearing about hope in Malachi. Uh, That's the final book of the Old Testament. And in 400 BC, Israel read of the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its rays. And so they looked out towards the horizon, eagerly expecting dawn. But the night went on and on and on. 400 years of darkness, 400 years of no promises fulfilled, 400 years of no hopes realized. Waiting, waiting, waiting. But now we get to Matthew 1, the music rises in a crescendo and the dawn finally breaks. The long night is over, all the threads of the plot converge and the main character steps out of the background and into the spotlight. Now we see the climactic realization of all Old Testament Israel's hopes in Jesus. He's finally here. So then we get this big long list of names and it's a little bit of an anticlimax. Does it seem a little bit disappointing? Aren't these the boring bits that we skip over in our Bible reading? Actually, the truth is, it is far from that. Um, This genealogy is a work of art. As we Uh, examine it, we discover hidden and surprising beauty. As we look a bit closer, we find that it's full of meaning. The fathers and mothers of Jesus teach us this. We'll put it up on the screen, a couple of, uh, one click on. The fathers and mothers of Jesus teach us that he is the fulfillment of everything Old Testament Israel longed for. And as we're going to see throughout this message, he actually fulfills everything we're longing for as well. We'll click on, because we'll see the first, um, the first meaning that really springs out of this passage, the first longing that is fulfilled is this, the son of Abraham will bless. A very literal translation of verse one would go like this, the book of Genesis of Jesus the Messiah 
or even Jesus the Messiah's book of Genesis. That's kind of cool, isn't it? It's an exciting way to start because it signals a new beginning. Um, The uh, first book of Genesis tells us about the origins of life. Jesus' book of Genesis tells us about the origins of something even better. But while this is a new beginning, starting in this way also shows that there's going to be continuity. The old book of Genesis hasn't been thrown away at all. Rather, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised to God's people long ago. The Genesis link continues, actually, in verse 1, where the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to call Jesus the son of Abraham. And that's exactly where the genealogy starts in verse 2 as well. Abraham's important because he was the father of the Jewish nation. He was called by God to step out in faith from his family and into something new. After the terrible fall of Adam um, and uh, the curse of sin falling upon the earth, this was the beginning of God's sovereign plan to reverse that curse of sin. God promised Abraham three things, if you can remember. Three big promises, in fact. He promised Abraham a big home, the promised land. He promised Abraham a a big family, the people of Israel. And he promised Abraham a big blessing. He promised that through Abraham's descendants, the whole world would be blessed. Now, throughout the Old Testament, faithful Israelites held on to this promise of worldwide blessing. And they longed for it to be realized All around them, their world was crumbling under the curse of sin. They were struggling with war, with oppression, with evil. They longed for that curse to be reversed. Their prophets kept the hope of fulfillment alive, speaking of Abraham's descendants or his descendant as a light to the nations. But they had to wait for, oh, such a long time. Now in Matthew 1. By linking Jesus to Abraham, God is giving the first hint that the waiting is finally over. Jesus is this long-awaited son of Abraham who will bring blessing to the whole world. And of course, that's not just Old Testament Israel's longing, that's our longing too. Every day, our phones, our TV screens, and our newspapers remind us that this world is crumbling, battered, bruised under the curse of sin. With Old Testament Israel, we long for that curse to be replaced by blessing. We long for peace to have victory over war. We long for freedom to break the chains of oppression. We long for life to triumph over death. And now in Matthew 1, the one who will bring blessing to the whole world is here. He has arrived. That's awesome. But how exactly will the whole world be blessed? This leads us on to our second point, which we'll click on the screen. The second key figure in the family tree, the son of David will reign. Verse 1 is just the first of ten occasions in the gospel where Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of David, and each time is a reminder that he is royalty. Luke's genealogy traces the genetic lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam, But Matthew's mainly interested in the line of royal succession. He records who wore the crown at each each generation, um, all the way from David down to Jeconiah, the last king before the exile, and then to Jesus. The main point is linking Jesus to David. 
And even the pattern that Matthew has constructed in verse 17 is about emphasizing this link between Jesus and David. Uh, Can you see there, uh, verse 17? There's this pattern, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And in Hebrew, I don't know if you know this, but each letter is given a numerical value. So we might occasionally play a a game where A equals 1, B equals 2, etc., etc. Hebrew's got something like that. And if you add up all the letters in the name David, what number do you get? 14. This whole family tree is designed to show that the link between Jesus and David is really, really important. Why go to all that effort? Why bother getting the calculator out to show that this link is, that, that this, this link is important? Because just as Old Testament Israel were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, so they were also waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises to David. In 2 Samuel 7, God made this promise. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And ever since that promise to David, Old Testament Israel were waiting for their Messiah, God's chosen king who would reign forever. And we can kind of see this promise as like the ultra HD version of God's promise to Abraham. Um, It's through the reign of this king that the whole world will be blessed. But the kings that came after David, oh, I mean, inconsistent. Um, That's being charitable, I think. How many of those kings, if you look at verses 7 to 11, how many of those names do you recognize? Maybe not many, or maybe if you're like me, you kind of recognize the names, but you can't remember who does what because they're all sort of merged in your mind. There's some real villains in that list. Solomon, of course, started well, but he ended badly. Rehoboam split the country in two. Ahaz sacrificed his son in the fire of an altar to another god. Um, And we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 that when Manasseh was leading Judah, um, he led the people into such great evil that they were worse than the Canaanites that God had got rid of in the first place. How could worldwide blessing ever come under such awful men? With leaders like that, God's people were far from a light to the nations. They were an additional darkness on the world. Of course, occasionally a good king would come along. King Josiah led the people in real, genuine, biblical repentance. But those changes never lasted because the good kings never lasted. They would die and be replaced by another corrupt God-hater. And so, The faithful few desperately longed for someone better. But now he's here. The Holy Spirit has weaved this genealogy together to show what a big deal it is that Jesus is a descendant of King David. Here he is, the king who will bring worldwide blessing, the king who will reign forever. And this is our longing too, isn't it? When we look at our world leaders. Of course we long for someone better. I was surprised to read a couple of weeks ago that 40% of planet Earth is going to the polling stations in 2024. 40%. That's the US, the UK, India, um, South Sudan, Russia, Iran, Taiwan, Ukraine. 
Um, some of those elections are going to be fair and free, others obviously less so. Um, so this year is significant in that way, and we should be praying over it. But whoever is voted in, Sunak or Starmer, Trump or Biden, they do not set the trajectory for humanity. They don't. From whatever perspective you're coming from, if the, the wrong person or the right person gets in, they will not bring worldwide blessing and they will not bring worldwide curse. Yes, they'll have their own limited impact for a limited time, but each one sits on a, a little throne for a little moment. The son of David reigns forever. He has arrived. King Jesus sits on the throne of heaven above all of it. And under his reign, the whole world will one day be blessed forever. Curse will be turned to blessing. Peace will have victory over war. Freedom will break the chains of oppression. Life will triumph over death. One day, everyone holding on to Jesus will see this blessing, this worldwide blessing in all its fullness. And indeed, we're already seeing this in part through his worldwide church. Those at war, worshipping together in unity. Those oppressed by addiction, by disease, by sin, being set free. Those who were once spiritually dead are now being made alive in Christ. The son of David will reign. His kingdom has arrived and one day soon it will arrive in fullness. But who can be part of it? This brings us on to our third, third point, and we'll click on. Because there's one more beautiful detail to notice in this family tree. The son of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary will welcome. By the expectations of first century Roman culture, it's surprising that um, those names appear in this genealogy at all. Um, their inclusion is surprising for three reasons. Firstly, it's surprising to see these names because women weren't usually mentioned at all back then. At that time, usually only the names of the men in the family were written down, recorded. That was thought to be enough. Women were considered irrelevant to the pages of history. So it's surprising to see these names here. Secondly, it's surprising to see these names because of which women are mentioned. Matthew could have mentioned the matriarchs of Israel. He could have um, called to memory Sarah, Rebecca, or Rachel. Tracing your line back to such heroes of history would give prestige and dignity to anybody's family tree. But instead, Matthew was inspired to highlight four Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite. You can find her in verse 3. Rahab was from Jericho. Um, I've lost which verse. Verse 5, you can find here. Ruth was from Moab, verse six, uh, also verse 5. Um, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, also verse 6. Um, so yeah, Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was from Jericho. Ruth was from Moab. And Bathsheba was almost certainly a Hittite. Now, if there was a first century version of the TV show, Who Do You Think You Are?, any other public figure would have tried to edit out those names. It would be embarrassing having these um, non-Jews in your family tree. But here they are. Surprising that they're here. And the third reason it's surprising 
to see their names is because their lives were a mess. Tamar was forced into pretending to be a prostitute in order to gain the son that was rightfully hers. Before helping God's people conquer Jericho, Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a woman of noble character, but even she had to be quickly ushered away from the threshing floor under the cover of darkness in order to protect her reputation. And Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's wife because she was the innocent victim in Israel's most famous sex scandal. So by human standards, because of gender, nationality, and scandal, these women just don't seem to fit. So why does Matthew include them? Because he's declaring God's mercy. Our God seems to take particular delight in taking outsiders and making them part of the royal family. Even in this list of names, Matthew is preaching the gospel. Jesus is proud to have people like this in his family. Imagine these five women waiting outside the gates of heaven. Tamar lifts her hands to knock at the door, but then her hand trembles and then falls. She turns to the other four and says, I, I just don't belong. My story is too complicated. Somebody else knock for me. So Rahab speaks up, certainly not me. You know what I did for work before God saved me. Somebody else do it. Ruth then replies, not me. I'm a nobody from Moab. He wouldn't be interested in me. Then Bathsheba notices that Ruth is looking at her. You're kidding, right? You know what happened to me. I'm just not worth it. And all this time, Mary has been hanging back, thinking. But now she notices something and says to the others, I'm just a poor girl from a nowhere town. But look what it says on the doormat. Welcome. Since God put that there, perhaps we should trust him. And they are oh so welcome. The neglected and ignored are welcome in Jesus' family. God's daughters are just as precious as his sons. Our sisters are just as important as our brothers. The outsiders are welcome in Jesus' family. The invitation to his wedding feast goes out to the street corners and the gutters and to all. He wants disciples of all nations. And sinners who repent are welcome in Jesus' family. Whatever you have done, whatever mess you have made in your life, you are welcome if you turn to Jesus today. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No other qualification necessary. The son of Abraham will bless. The son of David will reign. The son of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba and Mary will welcome. The fathers and mothers of Jesus teach us that he is the fulfillment of everything we've longed for. Blessing, reign, and welcome are all wonderfully found in Jesus and in him alone. So wait for him. Good things come to those who wait. You're not going to have to wait for 400 years. But we are in another waiting period. Yesterday, Mel, Josiah, and I were 
waiting in a queue outside a Chinese restaurant. The queue was huge and didn't seem to be going anywhere fast. The minutes ticked by and slowly our patience waned. So we said to each other, we could keep waiting, waiting for the restaurant, but Wing Yip, the Chinese supermarket, is literally next door. Let's just go there, ditch the queue, buy food there instead. We gave up waiting and satisfied our appetite elsewhere. Now, in our situation, giving up waiting in order to seek fulfillment elsewhere was no big disaster. Our cooking is really not that bad. But giving up waiting for Jesus will be soul-destroying. There are plenty of times where we might wonder whether he's worth it. There are plenty of other places we might go to find fulfillment in this life. But in the end, every other source will leave us under the curse of sin, on the outside, looking in. Only Jesus offers the fulfillment that is worth waiting for. So don't skip out on the queue. Keep waiting. Keep trusting. Keep confessing. Keep repenting. And all your desires will be fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for such, such beautiful truths spelled out in, in just a, a list. Father, we were amazed at the wonder of your gospel. Thank you so much that we are welcome in the royal family. Father, I pray that all of us would come to Jesus in repentance and faith for the first time or the hundred thousandth time that we would come to Jesus and receive that merciful, gracious welcome that you offer. Father, we praise you for your mercy. It is just so wonderful. We pray that it would capture our hearts and cause us to gaze on Jesus and wait on him for all, our, all the fulfillment we could possibly want. Father, please keep us from straying. Please keep us from impatience. Help us wait for the day where he comes again and we see his kingdom in fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.